Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. One of the foundational beliefs in Christianity is the Trinity, one God in three persons, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. In this series, we're diving in, asking honest questions and getting to know a God who loves us, who saves us, and who changes us. To find out more about Three Creeks Church, visit threecreekschurch.com. Well, good morning. Thanks again for uh, for having us. All the I'll, I'll slip that check to, uh, to John on the way out for all the kind things that he said. Um, really grateful to be here. So my wife, Sarah, and our, our, our three kids are with us today. So Sarah's in the back, and uh, Jake and Caroline and Kate is out with the kids as well. So really grateful for all that's going on. I know uh, quite a few of you, the connections here at Three Creeks and the Hess family or Grace Pillars Church are pretty extensive. So um, yeah, I've gotten to know uh, Joel and John over the last several years uh, really well. I've spent, uh, really enjoy my time with them and really grateful for what they represent with Three Creeks. Uh, Sarah, my wife, and Morgan Trainer go way back as family friends, and Ike and my brother-in-law, Matt, uh, were best friends growing up. And then I've uh, performed a couple of weddings, or one wedding, the, so the Morgans, and then uh, no other people here as part of that. So sorry if I missed anyone that I should have said, but really grateful for the relationships that we're able to share as part of the, the family of God in our unique Karis Fellowship as part of this area. You know, there's um, around 20 churches in our, well, 21 now, maybe with contrast, they might be 20 or 21, um, that are represented here in the central Ohio region, north central Ohio. So as far south as Grove City, as far north as Ashland, Ohio, uh, there's 20-some terrorist churches that are part of that. And we're really grateful for the partnership that we share in the gospel to reach people for Christ, to uh, connect in church planting and mission. You know, to, uh, to be here today as another church in our fellowship launches, what a privilege to see what God is doing in our city, in our region, and through our network and family of churches. So every Monday, our staff, our pastors gather, and I lead uh, in prayer, and we pray for two things primarily. We pray for um, uh, global workers, missionaries that we support around the world, and we pray for uh, local churches and districts. So this is the, uh, so we pray for Three Creeks on a regular basis, and this is the list of churches that we pray for. It's one of the only things that I keep in my Bible is this list of churches, to be reminded to pray for you. I'm grateful that the church is not a building, the church is a people that gathers in spaces. And you, as Three Creeks Church uh, here, God is using you in some marvelous ways in Gehenna, Ohio. And we praise God for his good work, and we're grateful for that partnership that we share in the gospel. I'm really grateful for the series that you're in today, or this, this, during this season, on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I love, as I got to listen to Joel's message from last week, he mentioned that the Trinity, so let me review a few things that he said last week. The Trinity, the word Trinity, is not a word that we find in the Bible, but it is a doctrine that we find revealed throughout Scripture. The church did not make up the Trinity the church simply gave a term to this doctrine of which the Bible teaches. Here's a couple of things that Joel said last week just to summarize. He said that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is equal or truly, fully God of the same substance. The Trinity is also united. It's one God. It is, not, it is not three gods competing with one another, but one God as three persons completely unified together. The persons are also, though, extinct, that their roles are, uh, they, they may have respective roles in some ways. And as, as Joel summarized last week, and I'll summarize today, the way we understand those roles, we might say that the Father loves, 
The Son saves and the Spirit changes. The doctrine of the Trinity. But why is this doctrine important? What difference does it really make? Is this something that Christians can just agree to disagree on? You know, is, is it really an essential thing? If it's so mysterious and difficult to figure out, why bother? Well, as one theologian says he, to the question, what's at stake in this doctrine? He says one word, everything. Everything. Christianity, he goes on to say, does not exist if God is not triune. But because God eternally exists as three persons in one divine essence, the church knows the one true God, experiences salvation, engages in prayer, undergoes transformation, and participates in mission to help others know the Trinity. So it's essential. Everything about Christianity rises and falls on the doctrine of the Trinity. One, one author has said, it is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. It is our central nervous system of who we are and what we do. So, if it's that central, then we had better understand it. We had better seek to understand how has God revealed himself. Even though, as Joel mentioned, there is an element of mystery here, we need not allow that term mystery to mystify us in such a way that it, it, it confuses us or says, well, we can't really know much, so therefore we won't try to know anything at all. Rather, the Bible has actually revealed to us much about the doctrine of the Trinity and how the three, function, how the three persons function as one God. So that's all summary from last week. So today as we begin talking about the doctrine of God the Father, let me begin with this question. What was God doing before creation? Have you ever thought of that? What was God doing before creation? You know, some people, the way they understand God, it, it seems as if God was, was kind of bored. So he had to create something to, to, uh, so that he had someone to love, so that he had something to do. But in eternity past, he was simply bored. It's as if God was singing the Queen song from eternity past, Can anybody find me someone to love? Right? Uh, another way to talk about God is as if he's um, kind of, uh, he's the, um, he, he's this distant being. He, he's the Wizard of Oz kind of God. He's, he's this scary person behind the curtain, but he's impersonal and distant, kind of grandstanding around, but really has no desire to love anyone or anything. But see, if, if, those, if either of those ideas were true, then God could potentially have love or maybe express love but God could not be love. What was God doing from eternity past? He has constantly, eternally existed within a perfect love relationship in his triune nature. You think about that? There was never a time that the triune God has not been loving. This is why God is not just God does not just express love, he is love because he's never not been loving. And as we talk about the Father today, we understand how the Father and love are connected together. 
You know, if we were to do a summary or a, or a, a survey of which, which person of the Trinity might be our favorite, we may, most of us might go to uh, the Son of God because, you know, we, don't, we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. We don't sing, God the Father loves me, this I know. So it's easy maybe for us to be, find ourselves attracted to the Son of God. And there's good cases for that. There's good reasons for that. But it is the Father, though, where love is connected. So as we think about this, we're going to go through quite a few portions of Scripture today, or I'll summarize them as best I can, but we're going to cover three questions. Who is the Father? What does the Father do? And how should we relate to the Father? And being that this stand cannot uphold my Bible, I'm just going to, you know, this is midget stand, that's okay. So I think I can live with this. So if you guys can, we're good. That's okay, we're good. All right, so first, who is the Father? This is our outline. Who is the Father? First, the Father is, He is the first person of the Trinity, who eternally exist in love. Okay, we'll switch to the table here. Thank you. We could have tried that balancing act for a while, but that would have gotten old. Okay, he is the first person in the Trinity who eternally exists in love. See, some people in our world think it might be unwise to try to understand or, or talk about God with any kind of specificity. And, and some people love the, the illustration, right, of, the, uh, of trying to describe God as like blind men trying to describe an elephant, all right? So you, maybe you've heard this before, that it's, you know, trying to describe God as you're blind and, you know, people are on the side of the elephant, on the trunk of the elephant, in the ear of the elephant, and everybody's kind of describing this being a little bit different, but since everyone's blind, no one can have a corner on truth. No one can exhaustively say, this is what the elephant is, unless... As Kevin Yud said, unless the elephant speaks and says, I'm an elephant. God speaking through his scripture is his way of revealing himself to us. So when we go to the Bible, it is God's self-revelation, his self-disclosure of who he is and describes how he is. So when God describes himself in this triune nature, we're going to the Bible to describe this. And the Bible describes God as a father. He talks about Israel as being his firstborn. Uh, in Psalm 103:13, the father shows compassion, as a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But the verses there kind of describe God as a father, acting as a father, more like an illustration. But is God truly a father? The answer is yes. See, God has eternally existed as a father to the Son. If you have a Bible or your phone, or you'll see it on the screen, you go to John 17, verse 5, and we see this. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Later on in John 17, verse 20, he says, I, he's praying for his people. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through, the wor through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one, 
so that then the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that passage. I was encouraging you to go read all of John 17 later today. But the main thing that we need to get across here on those verses is this. The Father and the Son have eternally existed in a glorious love relationship through the Holy Spirit. There was never a time God is not loving, which is why John can say later in 1 John chapter 4 that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God does not just have love. God does not just express love. God is love because God is triune. We oftentimes, to describe God, may go directly to his actions, what he does. But here we need to see how the Bible describes who he is in his essence. God has eternally existed as the Father in love with the Son through the Spirit. And this is what God has been doing all throughout eternity past. So... Later in Exodus, when Moses asked God to reveal his glory, this is, what Jesus, or this is what God says back to Moses. In Exodus 34, verse 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When the creature asked God to reveal himself, God says, I'm a God of love. I am love. And God can be loved because God the Father has never not been loving. You know, many, uh, all, every parent will describe the love that they have for their children to be a unique kind of love. And that doesn't mean that this love uh, uh, um, replaces the priority of the relationship of husband and wife, except there is a unique, something unique that a parent expresses in love towards their children, especially someone who can hardly love in return, especially when they're a, they're a newborn. But there was a time that I had to become a father to understand that love. But God has never had to understand that love. He's always been the father. Therefore, he's always known what it's like to love as a father. Now, sadly for too many of us, our experience of fatherhood, our experience with fathers and love are like oil and water. Those are, those are oxymorons. And I'm, I'm really sorry if that's your experience. My dad, for instance, had to parent my brother and I, trying to parent in the exact opposite way of how he grew up. That's a hard thing. And some of you are having to do that same thing. But our heavenly father, in his essence, one author said, if you were to poke God, love would pour out. God the Father is a God of love. But how, do we, how else do we know this? That's who God is, but what does the Father do? And see, too many people live by the do what I say and not what I do kind of life. But what does the Father do? Is his love proven? Well, to what does the Father do? We can answer it this way. The Father creates, redeems, and restores out of the overflow of his love. Now, God does more than create, redeem, and restore, except those three categories help us channel or understand a lot of what the Bible says about God's actions. 
Now, we need to make a quick caveat. Every act of God is truly a Trinitarian act, which means there's never a time that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit are acting completely apart from the other two. At the same time, the Bible does describe one, one person of the Trinity having a particular appropriation or a particular act that, that kind of lands on them, which we can say the Father takes the primary responsibility in creation, the Son takes primary, primary responsibility in salvation, and the Spirit takes primary responsibility in sanctification or ongoing change. However, all of those acts are still within their triune nature. Okay, so just an important caveat to say, but now we're going to talk about what is the Father's act in creation, redemption, and restoration. First, the Father creates out of the overflow of His love. The Nicene Creed and several other ancient creeds start with this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. Creation is the first act of God that we're able to see. And he creates out of his love. That refrain in Genesis 1 of God said, let there be, and it was, and it was good. The reason it was good is because God is good. The very creation reflects his ongoing character. And as Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We're able to see and know something about God's nature because of what we see created around us. And the crowning point of creation, it's not the mountain ranges. It's not the sunset over the ocean. It's human beings. Nothing else in creation is given God's image. But on that last day of creation, he saves the best for last and creates mankind, human beings, Adam and Eve, in his image to know him, to relate with him, and to share with him. And in creation, God plants his, his image in those people so that he might relate with them and in, that they might enjoy that perfect love relationship as well. They walk in the garden together. There's an interpersonal relationship that goes on. There's beauty and wonder that's there. But notice, many of you know the story, it doesn't stay that, that way for too long. And in, in, in rebellion and sin, Adam and Eve love themselves more than they love God. They reject his love. They respond seeking their own way. And in their rebellious nature then, God cast them out of the garden. But do you notice something? We have to be introduced to God's judgment. We're all we would know early was God's love and relationship. But he responds to their sin with judgment. And this now is the, the rebellion that all of us share in. All of us born as human beings now are born with this sinful nature. And our predisposition is towards sin. To reject God and to go our own way. God easily could have said, fine, I'm done with it. I'll just go back to being uh, existing alone in my triune nature. He could have done that and would have been in a glorious love relationship. But instead of just ending it for human beings, those whom he has created but have rebelled against him, he continues to pursue through redemption. So God creates out of the overflow of his love, but the Father redeems his people out of the overflow of his love as well. 
See now, in light of that sin, a constant theme that goes along with human sin is then exile. They're exiled out of the garden. They're exiled out of their land. But the consequence from sin is being away from God. But the father of love is also the father of justice. No good father is okay with injustice either among their children or toward their children. God has to find a payment for that. But we see the father is the one who's acting to restore and redeem his children. And I want to use three biblical illustrations to prove this point. First is in the exodus out of Egypt. They had been there. They had been in bondage for 400 years. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and God tells him, say this to Pharaoh. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you don't let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. God is trying to say, I'm after my glory. I'm after my child. Hosea 11.1 1 confirms this and it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. But then Deuteronomy chapter 7 actually helped connect the dots for why would God do this? He says, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath he swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, friends, notice this. God hears the cries of his children, and he calls them out and redeems them. Not because they are so great, but because his love is so marvelous. Second illustration is the return from exile. So eventually they're taken out of Egypt, they're, they're brought into their land, and then about a thousand years after this event, Israel was taken away into a, a new land, into Babylon. They were, they were, because of their sin, God was exiling them again. He was sending them away, and they go into Babylon. Israel was meant to be this treasured possession. They were meant to have this great name and fame among the nations. They were meant to, to bear God's image and to be a, a, a story to tell the nations. But, and they were supposed to have this great king over them who would rule them. But now they're kicked out of their land. They have no land, no name, and no king. God must have forgotten them, right? But in Jeremiah 31, we see, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And God's fatherly love, he hears his people's cry, and he responds and returns them to their place. But even more glorious is in the cross of Christ. See, both of those stories lead us to see a more grand and more perfect redemption the love of God perfectly on display as the eternal father sends his eternal son to die for his people. This is where we get John 3.16, a marvelous uh, Sunday school verse that has deep meaning though. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. 
And then we see God's electing love for his people in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. See, do you see this? God's electing power to call out people to respond and his love are connected. God, because of his love that he has for his people, sends his eternal son to pay the price that they deserve so that those who trust in the son are now grafted in as adopted children of God. Through our union with Christ, we are made sons and daughters of the Father. God the Father redeems his people out of the overflow of his love. And as we've already sung, the, the, the story kind of continues to get better. Not only has he saved us out of the overflow of his love, not only did he create us out of the overflow of his love, but he will one day perfectly restore us into a perfect love relationship once again. We still await as God's people what Amos said, let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're still awaiting that day where God's perfect justice will reign in its totality. And God's people have always been asking for this. Even after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus responds to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But the Father has a plan to restore all things to himself. This very earth, and even more importantly, every single one of us who has trusted in Christ will then be in perfect love relationship with no, nothing holding us back. The, the pictures that are in Revelation, often, several of them are as a bride and a bridegroom, a husband, that will be perfectly united in perfect love in unity where God will be our God and we will be his people and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God the Father will restore everything to himself. This is the equivalent of a schoolyard argument where one kid finally looks at the other kid and says, my dad will be, can beat your dad up. See, the Father the storehouse of all sovereignty and the storehouse of all love has not left us alone, but has promised one day a new kingdom where we are not just peasants, but restored as heirs, as children of God. So as we conclude now with that final question, how should we relate to the Father? Three points of application. First, is that we can be made adopted sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Would you describe your relationship with God as, as, a, as a, a parent-child relationship? On what basis would you say you're a child of God? Is it, is it only because of your goodness? You've obeyed enough? 
you were born into a religious family, and, and you know, I think God grazed on the curve, and I, I'm included because my parents were included? Or have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized him as the Son of God who, through his sacrifice on the cross, is the only way that you can have salvation to restore you to the Father? Are you a child of God by faith in Christ? There's no other way. He is it. Secondly, we can live in security and communion with the triune God as dependent children. See, for any of us who are kid or who have children, and some of you might be in here and be empty nesters or are already looking forward to those empty nester days because when your, de- your dependent children are kind of on their own and you don't have the day-to-day aspects of parenting, guess what? God is not an empty nester parent. He is not leaving us out there on our own to finally get sufficient enough. He actually wants to parent us all the time. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that, that if you're anxious about your life, at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at the flowers of the field. They, they've not clothed themselves, but you will. Their, 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 their clothing is better than Solomon's, but, but you're more valuable than they. He says, your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. So do not be anxious. Trust Him. Is it difficult for you to trust in God is a father who knows best and a father who loves and cares for you. Friends, we are dependent children. And finally, we can pray in light of our intimate relationship with our heavenly father. It's natural for us to begin our prayers with father in heaven. Why? Well, for That's how Jesus taught us to pray. And it also reveals that intimate relationship that we have with God, that it is a father to children. It is not some impersonal uh, deity that is an idol of stone that we bow down to or try to bring offerings to to try to appease. No, it's a father who loves and cares for his children and has done everything for them to have a relationship with. Could it be that some of the struggles that we have in prayer is because we look at prayer more like sitting on Santa Claus's lap, asking for God's gifts, rather than praying in light of a personal relationship, wanting to know the Father? Oh, friend, when you begin your prayer this afternoon and you say, our Father in heaven, what a rich God we get to pray to now. So when we think about the Father, we think about the Father of love. We believe in the Father of love. He's eternally existed as the Father of love. He's created, redeemed, and will restore out of the overflow and abundance of His love. And He relates to us as a Father through His Son so that all of us who have trusted Christ by faith are now His sons and daughters. Can you trust Him? As a parent, as a dad, there's often times that I ask my kids to do something of which they have a lot of questions about. And the why question as a parent is fun to a point. But eventually, I just want to look at my kids in the face and I say, I want you to trust me because as your father, I know best. Can you look at God that way? That as a father, he knows best. Let's trust him. So Lord, Heavenly Father, 
we come today out of the abundance of joy that it is to be your child by faith, knowing that you have uh, given us the opportunity to be drafted into that perfect love relationship that you enjoy through the Spirit with the Son. Lord, the mystery that is there is too wonderful for us to completely fathom. But God, we pray that you would give us just the greatest glimpse that we might know you and relate to you as a father who cares for his hurting children, who hears our cry, has restored and redeemed and will one day perfectly renew everything for his children. What a privilege it is to be a child of God. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. And to find out more about Three Creeks Church, visit threecreekschurch.com.